Well, thank you so much to all of those that were involved this morning to make today happen. A lot of work uh, went in behind the scenes to get prepared for this. And those that set up the trailers, those that did all the technology, all of the planning and the preparation. And uh, we're certainly thankful for everyone who was part of that process. And it's great to be able to be back uh, as a church. And for those that are joining us online, uh, we look forward to having them with us at some point in the future as well. And in the meantime, we're just thankful for the opportunity to be able to gather, to be able to worship, and to be able to um, enjoy uh, singing together, fellowshipping together, and seeing how God uh, works in our hearts and our lives. We uh, mentioned, those of you that were here last week or watched last week, we did mention that uh, we're going through a series that we are uh, looking at over the, over the next six weeks. We started last week, and so uh, we looked last week at the fact that we are being filled with the Spirit. And the role of our lives as believers is to be filled with the Spirit. That's an ongoing process. We would really argue that the way that we are able to fulfill the different commands in Scripture is by being filled with the Spirit. It is the Spirit of God at work within our hearts and our lives that enables us to be able to accomplish what He's called us to do. And certainly as you look at the New Testament, as you look at Scripture, there are a number of challenges, a number of difficulties that we have in trying to fulfill the commands that God has called us to fulfill. And being filled with the Spirit in that ongoing process is certainly part of that. Well, this morning, as we continue that series, it's really entitled on a big picture, We Are Family. This are, these are six things that Whitneyville Bible Church needs to continuously have on their mind, continuously be pursuing after. So last week looked at the fact that we are being filled with the Holy Spirit, or we are to be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, this morning, we're going to look at a text of Scripture. Actually, we're going to look at a couple of different texts of Scripture that are going to allow us to look at this aspect that Jonathan has already introduced for us this morning, that we are loving God and others unconditionally. That's our mission statement of our church, unconditionally loving God and others. And that's one thing to say, and it's one thing to, to have it promoted and talked about, but it's an entirely different thing to actually do. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at this aspect of unconditionally loving God and others. And so we want to look at this this morning. And uh, before we do, though, let's have a word of prayer and ask God to help us and guide us this morning. Father, we're so thankful to you for all that we have and all that you have accomplished in our lives. And Father, we're thankful for the chance that we have to be able to gather together today to be able to worship you to be able to sing our praises to you, to be able to offer up what little we have to offer in order to give you the honor and the glory that you deserve. And Father, today I pray that you would enable us and help us to be able to apply the truths of your word to our hearts and to our lives this morning. Father, as our country is experiencing a number of difficult things and a number of difficult challenges, Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom and give us discernment, give us listening ears, give us helpful hearts. Father, may you be glorified in our lives, and may in all that we do and all that we say, may we reflect Jesus Christ. And Father, today I pray that you would encourage us and bless us through your word this morning. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. I mentioned for those that were part of our prayer meeting earlier, about three or four weeks ago, I sent an email to the elders just kind of outlining the next six weeks of messages that we would do. And 
not necessarily any particular order. Some of them had a specific place, but a couple of them didn't. This was one particular message that didn't necessarily, in my mind, have a specific spot it had to fit in that series, but we chose this week as the message that we would do as part of the six statements that we would look at and being unconditionally loving God and others. Little did we know and little did I know that our world would seem to erupt over the last 12 to 13 days as unfortunate events have occurred all around our country and even around our world. On June 1st, just a few days ago, it was announced that in the last week, more than 17,000 National Guard troops had been activated and deployed in 23 states, including Washington, D.C. That's a difficult thing for us to process. That's a difficult thing for us as Americans to be able to comprehend and to think about that our country is in such a condition, our, our world is in such a condition that we are now asking those within the military ranks to come and to help, not fight somebody on a foreign soil, but to help restore order and help restore peace within our own country. It's been challenging for us as we've seen looting and destruction from Los Angeles to New York and seemingly everywhere in between. And for those of you that may be nervous, this isn't going to be a political message. We are going to drive ourselves to scripture, which is where everything must drive. But at the same time, we've seen innocent lives taken at the hands of angry people, not the least of which was a man we all know by now by the name of George Floyd. Police officers have lost their lives. Other innocent people have lost their lives. The consequences, the fallout, the issues that have presented themselves as a result have been challenging for us. We watched in horror as those events have unfolded across our country and across our nation. I want to read to you a quote by a pastor. He says this, and I must say tonight that a riot is the language of the unheard. And what is it America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear the promises of freedom and justice have not been met. And it has failed to hear that large segments of society are more concerned about tranquility and the status quo than about justice and humanity. The challenge that we face today in our world is exactly this. Although this was not communicated this week or last week, that statement was made on March 14, 1968 at Gross Point High School just outside of Detroit. And it was stated by Martin Luther King who gave a speech decrying the fact that we are more concerned as he says, about tranquility and status quo than about justice and humanity. Some 52 years ago, those words were said. And for me, I wasn't born then. I wasn't born until 1977. That was long before my time. And here we are 52 years later. And that quote could have been said last night, just as much as it was said 52 years ago. So where are we as a country? How are we as believers? Where are we as a church? How do we engage in the midst of a conflict, in the midst of a challenge, in the midst of a difficulty? And how do we ensure that in 52 years, some other person isn't standing up at Whitneyville Bible Church or some other church reading a similar quote and we realize nothing in fact has really changed that much? I think in the midst of all of the situation that we're facing, in the midst of all the circumstances that our country is going through and all of the challenges that are being presented, the people that have the most responsibility to do something about it is the church because we have the truth of the message of God's word. And so we sit in our, today in our lawn chairs, but we normally sit in our pews and we sit in our chairs and and we think, well, what am I supposed to do? What, what is the right action? What is the right call to response? What is the right thing that God wants us to do? How does God want us to respond? 
and we read passages and we look at things like we'll look at this morning of the idea of unconditionally loving God and others. And sometimes we may look at that and say, is that it? Is that, is that really what it boils down to? It, could it possibly be that simple? That if each one of us were to actually do what God has called us to do, would it actually make a difference? So we have questions that arise, such as how many more people need to die before we start doing something? How many more businesses need to be destroyed before we start doing something? How many more times do we justify our silence? And the overwhelming response is, what do you want from us? That's my question. I hear all the noise in the media. I hear all the noise in the world. And I think, well, what do you want from me? And what I found myself doing this week is asking this hypothetical group of people that is telling me something, namely those people that are producing it on television and radio and internet and other things. I'm asking them, well, what do you want me to do about this? I wasn't in Minneapolis. I didn't kill George Floyd. I wouldn't have condoned that. What do you want me to do? How do you want me to handle a situation that's happening in Los Angeles? How do, you, how do you want me to handle a situation that's happening in D.C.? So I find myself in almost this hypothetical conversation with the media, with the Internet, with the news that I'm reading, going, what do you want me to do? And I realized I've been asking the wrong person the wrong question. Because the person that's asking the question is not the media, although they would like you to think that they're the ones that are asking the questions. The real person that we need to be asking the question of what do you want us to do is actually God. To say, God, what do you want us to do? It's not answering Fox News. It's not answering CNN. It's not answering MSNBC. It's not answering anybody else. It's simply answering the question that God is asking, which is, what will you do? And so that's our question today. What will we do? The world is screaming today for social justice, and rightly so. There are atrocities that have occurred. There are difficult things to explain to our children. If you are raising children in this time, you understand the difficulty of having a conversation with them about how do we explain the events that are going on and people's responses to those events, and how do we deal with this. But this issue is not an American issue. No one should ever sell you that lie that this is somehow a white, middle-class American problem, and that's the only place it exists. That's not true. This is a worldwide, global issue. It doesn't excuse behaviors that have occurred in America. But we have to look at this on a global stage and say, in the world, this is being repeated over and over and over again. I've sat in Kenya trying to teach pastors theology and have had literally one pastor of one tribe refuse to enter the room because another pastor from another tribe is already in that room. This isn't a white American issue. This is a global issue. Nor can we salve our conscience and say, well, oh, whew, good, it's a lot of people's problems, so it's nobody's problem. The reality is it's everybody's problem. It's a black problem, it's a white problem, it's a red problem, it's a brown problem, it's a whatever pigment color problem you want to talk about, whatever culture problem you want to talk about, whatever issue you want to bring up. The problem is sin. And the unfortunate reality is, due to the depravity of mankind, we'll never perfectly see these things taken care of in our world today. Kids, I'm sorry, those of you that are graduating those of you that are moving into high school, we have to stand before you and say it's not going to be fixed. In fact, it's probably going to get worse. So to encourage you as you go into high school, as you go off to college, it's going to get worse. But how do we teach our children how to handle this? How do we speak to them? How do we engage them? How do we help them? How do we encourage them? The only way that we can answer this is to point ourselves to Scripture and to say that Jesus Christ is the only one who can perfectly fix this problem, and someday, someday, he will. Someday, Jesus Christ will perfectly fix the problem of sin. Amen. And it will be taken care of and addressed in a manner that is appropriate. But in the process, we still have to live our lives. And 
So we asked the question, well, what's the solution? What's the answer? How, how do we solve this problem? How do we solve this issue? And at the outset of this, we need to make very, very, very clear, in case there's any misunderstanding, we do not get to heaven. We do not gain eternal life by doing good things. Some of the passages that we are going to look at and read and examine may give us the idea that, well, if I'm just good to somebody else, I can have eternal life. I can just be good enough to people, then maybe God will let me in. That's in violation of Scripture. We have to see it in its entire context. But I want to take us on a little bit of a journey for just a moment to a couple of passages. The first one is Acts chapter 17. Verses 24 through 26. Acts chapter 17, verse 24 through 26. It says this. The God who made the world. This is actually Paul addressing the Areopagus. This is Paul addressing those men and maybe some women. But those men who uh, were obviously challenging him and engaging with him. The God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Did you see that last part of verse 25? Since he, God himself, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Verse 26. And he made from one man. Every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. Paul reminds us that God is the creator of all humanity. Everyone gives their life, has their life given to them by God. We know that it came from Adam and it's progressed over time where we have people from all tribes and tongues and nations and places on this earth. The, the earth is populated. So somebody from Bangladesh, created by God. The woman from Ethiopia, is created by God. The boy from Peru, is created by God. The girl from Sweden, is created by God. Here's the challenge, if we're not careful, we can begin to fall into a temptation that says, you know what, God probably loves me more than he loves anybody else. Because I want to think of myself as special. I want to think of myself as important. God loves me more than maybe he does anyone else. And if we're not careful, then we, we extend that out to those that are part of our little network. Well, God loves us more than anybody else. God loves Whitneyville Bible Church more than any other church in America. That would be nice, but that actually is not true. Nor would it really be that nice. <laughs> We're not God's favorite church. I'm not God's favorite person. And neither are you. The fact of the matter is this. As humans, we have engaged in identifying ourselves in certain capacities. And race is actually one of those social categorizations that have been given to people. And so even though Paul has made it abundantly clear that all humanity proceeds from God, that God has created all of mankind and all of humanity comes from God, we've now begun to coordinate ourselves and organize ourselves and group ourselves into little different pockets of people. And over time, we begin to think that one particular group is more important than another. We have a thing that is called ethnicity, which is defined as the fact or state of belonging to a social group that has a common national or cultural tradition. And right now we can see our world is caught up in this ethnic battle. We're caught up in this situation where some people don't like other people. Some people not just don't like them, but they hate them. And so as Paul has reminded us in Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 26, all humanity extends from God. We then look at two particular passages. The first one is Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. This is the parallel passage, <clears throat> excuse me, to Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. But Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34 
says this. I may have the wrong text. That's all right. That's right. Is it right? I can't see where I'm at. I'm in Mark 13. All of you that have told me not to use an iPad will tell me today is the day you were right. <laughs> it's okay. I'm comfortable in who I am. It's contagious. Mark chapter 12. <clears throat> I'll get there in one second. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28, says this. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? That's the question, right? The guy is trying to stump Christ. He's trying to get Christ to say, okay, in the midst of all the laws of the Old Testament, there was uh, several hundred of them, several hundred laws. Some had a positive context. Some had a negative context. There was this constant battle in the process of weighing these different laws to say, well, which one is, I'm like, if we have to boil it down to one thing, which is the most important? Which law, which command is the most important? Verse 29, Jesus answered, the most important is, and then he begins to quote the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Verse 32, and the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Here's the question that was posed to God. Which one is most important? Christ answers, the most important one is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The second, love your neighbor as yourself. This passage parallels almost precisely Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. But in a very similar passage of scripture, we find in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. The progression here is this we start in acts chapter 17 we begin to see all of humanity extends from god all of humanity comes from god the greatest command according to mark chapter 12 according to matthew chapter 22 is love the lord your god with all your heart soul and mind love your neighbor as yourself well luke chapter 10 builds upon those particular passages luke chapter 10 verse 25 there are some who say this was all part of the same conversation. In other words, you have the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're all kind of showing this, the life and ministry of Christ from very similar thought processes. They're going to overlap a lot of similar stories and a lot of similar situations. There are some who will argue this is actually an extension out of the conversation that already occurred in Mark and already occurred in Matthew. There are going to, some that are going to say this is a separate discussion. I tend personally to believe it's a separate conversation that's occurred. But you could debate whether or not this is all the same conversation or whether this is different. And if you get caught in that, you've probably missed the point. <laughs> Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. If we just ended the conversation right there, it would have tied nicely to Matthew 22 and Mark chapter 12. But the conversation continues. Verse 29, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? That's the linchpin question of this day. Who's my neighbor? See, in Matthew and in Mark, we don't get that conversation. It's just, hey, love God and love everybody else. Great. Love your neighbor as yourself. This lawyer is brilliant. So I think he's trying to either have some understanding. He's also trying to be part of a group of people that are trying to trip Jesus up. But he comes back with this question, well, who's my neighbor? So that's the question we have to answer. I remember a man... <clears throat> 
When I was growing up, I spent pretty much every Sunday and Wednesday, and I went to a Christian school and every day pretty much at the same building, Memorial Baptist Church. There was a man by the name of Wade Skidmore. He was an old, at least as far as I was concerned as a kid, he was really old. He was probably only 55 or 60 at the time. But every day I walked into church, Wade would tell me, hello, neighbor. And that used to really bug me as a kid. Because in my very literal, very limited knowledge, I'm like, you don't live next to me. Why are you calling me neighbor? And every Sunday I would come to church. I could still picture Mr. Skidmore standing at the back of the church, and I would walk in, and he would say, hello, neighbor. And yet, as I read this text, two comes to my mind is Wade Skidmore. The influence that an old man had on a young kid, he didn't even realize he had it. To think about the concept of who is my neighbor. Who, who the lawyer is trying to figure out, well, I've got this major command. If we're looking at 600 plus commands, and some are negative and some are positive, and some have different weight systems to them, I need to know which one's the most important. And Jesus has defined the most important one. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. It's pretty much on the same plane. The natural response is, I better figure out who my neighbor is and make sure I'm loving them so that I'm fulfilling this text. And so Jesus responds with a story, a parable. As Jesus always does, he answers succinctly and he answers completely. Verse 30, he says this, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. This is the scene that is set for us. This man is coming down. It's the, the text of scripture is going to talk about. If you know the geography of, of this region, you're coming actually down some steep terrain from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Fell among robbers. He was stripped and he was beaten and he was left half dead. This is obviously a difficult situation. Verse 31, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. The word by chance. Some of you will say, well, I thought God was sovereign. Why would God say by chance? The language here is just simply talking about this was a remote area. And the chance that somebody was coming that way was limited because not many people would have necessarily have been traveling that road all the time frequently to have witnessed it. The idea is that no one witnessed this act, this issue. No one witnessed this event. This event occurred in a remote area. This man is stripped and beaten and left for dead. So he says, now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, Christ says, do you think proved to be a neighbor? This is a beautiful picture. I mean, it's not beautiful because of the situation. It's a parable. It could have happened, but in this particular case, Christ is not thinking about a specific situation, a specific person that this happened to. But it's a beautiful picture for us to think about. It's a beautiful question for us to think about. The lawyer is pushing Christ to say, who is my neighbor? If I'm supposed to fulfill this law, then I better know how to fulfill this law. Who's my neighbor? Christ gives him this response. There are some of you sitting here watching this, listening to this, who would say, oh, I, yeah, it's the story of the Good Samaritan. I've heard this about a thousand times. <laughs> so Dave will smile, will entertain you, and think that uh, we're engaged with you. But we've heard this from the time we were a child, so we're cool. I don't know that you actually are, but if you want to pretend that way for a little while, I'll let you. There are people watching this and listening to this who they've never heard the story. They couldn't tell you anything about the Good Samaritan. So for them... For the rest of us, we look at this and say, okay, let's actually break this down and think this through. Christ has mentioned several different components here. 
he mentions this issue of the man who is going down and he is beaten and he is found by a priest who walks on the other side. He's found by a Levite who walks on the other side. He's found by a Samaritan who comes to his aid. To understand this issue, we have to understand the role of the Jew and the Samaritan. The United Kingdom of Israel was divided after Solomon's death due to the foolishness of his own son. We see this in 1 Kings chapter 12. The ten northern tribes formed a nation known as Israel or Ephraim or after the capital city built by Omri, it was known as Samaria. In 722 BC, Samaria fell to the Assyrians and the leading citizens were exiled and dispersed throughout the Assyrian Empire. Non-Jewish people were then brought into Samaria. Intermarriage resulted and the rebels, as they were known, became half-breeds in the eyes of the southern kingdom. You can imagine the Jewish people being split of one particular group who is known as the rebels. They begin intermarrying and now the offspring are known as Samaritans. It wasn't a good name. I was thinking this week of slurs that I was taught and was used around when I was growing up that I never thought anything about because they were just words. And then you get older and you realize, wow, that we shouldn't have used those words. Those words had meaning. They had significant offensive tones to them with meanings to them. That would have been the word Samaritan. It would have been a word that at the time was not a good context. It was not a good connotation. The Jews and the Samaritans had constant battles. They had constant issues culturally and ethnically. The, the battle was so great that in John chapter 8, verse 48, in an attempt to show their disdain for Christ, Christ is told this, Aren't we right? In saying, you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed. In other words, this language was so crass, it was so nasty, it was so hate-filled that Christ's enemies tried to use it on him to show, basically, if you're a Samaritan, you're about as good as a demon-possessed person. And so this is the context. This lawyer knows this. This lawyer understands this. This isn't like some new revelation to him. So when Christ paints this picture of a man who is, has to be believed to be a Jew, who is coming from Jerusalem down to Jericho on this deserted terrain as he's coming down and he's, he finds some robbers and they beat him and they strip him and they leave him half dead and after they rob him and they leave him there. Christ is answering this question, who's my neighbor? And he begins, first of all, and he says, a priest comes by. Then he talks about a Levite. Those that are part of the religious system, the legal system, those that would sacrifice, those that would engage one another in their religious ceremonies, those that should know better, obviously. So what are some observations I want to give you three observations about this text in general, and then we're going to look at four principles. Observation number one, people in our world often find themselves in desperate need. This is an observation. This is the factual aspect of this story. As you look at the story objectively, you're going to look at this and say the Jew who was coming from Jerusalem to Jericho, he finds himself in desperate need. He's been beaten, he's been robbed, he's been stripped, he's been left for dead. The second observation is this. People who should be the example for being kind and loving may not always be. The stark contrast that Christ presents is twofold. One, culturally speaking, a Jew to a Jew should have helped each other. There was a, a cultural, ethnic comparison it's got to be automatically assumed that the priest is a Jew the Levite is a Jew they should have helped their own but they didn't but then you could take that a step further and you really should from a religious knowledge of the law the priest knew the Shema 
the Levite would have known the Shema. He would have known that the greatest command to do is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so the second observation is this. People who should be the example for being kind and loving may not always be. And then the Samaritan comes into the scene. And the third observation is this. Sometimes the most unlikely of people can be the greatest example of love. Who should have helped? The priest should have helped. And then if he didn't help, the Levite should have helped. I mean, if you're thinking about counting a score for Judaism, they're 0-2. They've missed the point. Ethnically, they've missed the point. Religiously, those two men should have stopped. And Christ doesn't just say they didn't stop. What is the language that he uses? They passed by on the other side. They made an intentional effort to not be bothered by the situation. And yet the Samaritan comes. So the third observation is sometimes the most unlikely of people can be the greatest example of love. If you were to if you would have stopped and not told this situation, if you would have told this lawyer, let me give you three people, a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. Which one of those do you think is going to behave the best? I guarantee you without this background of the story, that lawyer would have said, "Oh, it must have been the priest." Oh, and if it wasn't the priest, it must have been the Levite. No way on God's green earth could it have ever have been the Samaritan. And yet the point of the story is Christ is trying to make to the lawyer is, who is my neighbor? I'm telling you who your neighbor is. Who's your neighbor? Your neighbor is anyone who has need who you come into contact with in your area of influence. I've been to Minneapolis maybe, I don't know, twice in my life. I have no idea of the location where George Floyd was killed. I have no idea. I don't know those men that killed him. I don't know the man that died. Was George Floyd my neighbor? I don't think I can say George Floyd was my neighbor. But there were a bunch of people there who George Floyd was their neighbor. That's right. Who missed the opportunity to engage in a process of helping Someone who desperately needed help. The difficulties of law enforcement, the difficulties of people who are breaking the law are difficult challenges for all of us to engage. And it's not always just about somebody who's violated the law, somebody who is being arrested. Sometimes we encounter people who have desperate needs, physically, spiritually, emotionally, financially, whatever the case may be. Whose obligation is it? Christ says, if you know about it, you see it, it becomes your obligation. We can't be like the priest who says, I'm going to pass by on the other side. We can't be like the Levite who says, I'm going to pass by the other side. The point that Christ is trying to make is this. We are to be the Samaritan, the one who is the most unlikely to help, the one who is the most unlikely to engage in this process. So here's four principles from the Good Samaritan. First of all, loving others means loving them even though they are different. Loving others means loving them even though they are different. It's difficult for us to love different people. We tend to like people that are like us. We're comfortable with that. We're familiar with that. We're, we're knowledgeable of that. But loving others means we love them even though they are different. Maybe they're a different culture, maybe they're a different race, maybe they're a different ethnic group, whatever the case may be. We see this in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. I'll not read that entire section, but it talks about not showing partiality. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. The second principle is this. Loving others means loving them even though we are enemies. Loving them, even though we're enemies. Could you imagine? Let's think about somebody that you're an enemy of. It's possible that, I always say in this room, but in this field, there are some of you who have people that you quite honestly don't get along with. Maybe they're in your own family. Maybe they're your friends that used to be your friends, and now they're your enemies. Now, maybe they're people that have a, a history with you. 
Loving God and loving others means that we love them even though they are enemies. The Samaritan was an enemy culturally of this Jew. And yet he loved him. Look at all that he did for him. Look at how he engaged him in this process. As Christ is talking about, he points out, verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He loved him. He went to him, unlike the priest and the Levite, and he bound up his wounds. He poured on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal. Meaning what? Meaning the guy walked the rest of the way. He set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day... He took out two denarii. A denarii is a day's wage. So think about whatever that is for you. He took out two days' wages, and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. As I've thought about this this week, I thought, you know what? I don't know that I would do that. I mean, I'm just going to be very honest. I don't know that I would do that. If I saw somebody in this need, I mean, I would hope that I would do something. I would hope that maybe I would say, oh, you know what, hey, bub, I'm so sorry. I'll, let me call the police. Let them deal with you. Let me, let me call the ambulance. Let them help you. Let me, let, me, let me call somebody else. I don't know that I would have done this. If we can think about this in a modern-day context, that I find somebody who is hurt and who, is, who has been left for dead, and I, I bind up their wounds, and I take care of their wounds, and I... I put them in my own vehicle, and I take them to a hotel room, and I, and I pay for that night of that hotel room, and I try to get them some rest, and I try to get them some food, and I try to do all that I can for them. And then the next day, I go to the, to the owner of the motel, and I say, you know what, here's, here's two full day's wages. Whatever, whatever he needs, he's in room 102, whatever he needs. Here's two full days wages, and when I come back in two days, whatever else he needs, let me know, and I will take care of it. Then on top of that, if I hated that man because of the cultural implications of the day and age in which I lived, this is a remarkable story. This isn't about some random person who helped somebody else call 911. This was somebody who had cultural hatred for the other person. And yet saw Christ work in this parable, saw the work of Christ to show them love and to show them compassion. Loving God and others means, first of all, we love others even when they're different. It means we love others when they're our enemies. We see this in Matthew 5, 43 through 48. It also means loving them even though we have to sacrifice. We see this in John chapter 15, verse 13. Greater love is no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. We see it in 1 John 3, 17. We see it in James 2, 14 through 16. I'll love somebody, but don't make me sacrifice to love them. And we're not unconditionally loving God and others. Because unconditionally loving God and others means I love them even though they're different. I love them even though they're an enemy. I love them even though I have to sacrifice. But here's the fourth and final principle, which is probably the kicker. It means I love them even though no one will see it. You know what's wrong? Uh, there's not enough time. <laughs> the problem with social media today, especially this is one of my strong frustrations with professional athletes. They use social media to brag about how wonderful they are to a group of people so that they feel better about themselves. Are there some good professional athletes? Absolutely. Do they give? Yes, they give. But this man, this Samaritan, who helped this Jew who had been beaten and left for dead and, and was in a bad place, he did all of this stuff. And I know we didn't have social media, and there was no parable analogy to put in social media here. But I can guarantee you, if this was a modern-day parable, he did not get on Twitter and tweet out a picture of him and this guy and say, just FYI, you know, so grateful to help this guy. Two days' wages worth. Put him up in a hotel. Just, you know, just want to throw that out there for everybody to see how wonderful I am. Because some people will say, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll love somebody if I'm different than they are. I'll, I'll love somebody if they're my enemy. I'll love somebody if, 
if uh, I have to sacrifice as long as I get something out of this. As long as everyone knows what I did. Could you imagine finding somebody like this and helping them? And no one knew you did it? Would you still be willing to do it? We see this in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. As Christ communicates the hypocrisy of those who talk about themselves. So here's some final thought. The love of one's neighbor must transcend all natural or human boundaries, such as nationality, religion, economic, and educational status. What would happen if you found a Muslim man out here on the streets? Turban and everything. Well, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I, I, I don't know that I should have... You know what? He, he's an enemy, and I don't like him, and they probably were responsible for some things, and you know what? I'm going to go the other way. See, it's easy for us in our mind to insert the person that, yeah, they may be a little bit different than us, but we're still willing to go there and help them in our mind. What the parable of the Good Samaritan is wanting us to do is to this. Insert into our mind the worst person we could ever imagine helping and then help them by sacrificing even though they're different, even though they're an enemy, and even though no one will ever know. That's the point. I've heard this story a thousand times. And you know what my natural tendency is to do? Oh, I can find somebody that I don't know that I may not like, like, you know, a Cardinals fan. And um, I could insert them into the equation, and I could probably help them. Dave Dietz is an idiot. But that's how some of us think, right? Like, we come up with this scenario, and we insert the, the person that we are most likely to help, even though we can say we're different from all of them. The fact of the matter is, from the story of the Good Samaritan, it's about loving each other regardless of how different we are, whether they're our enemies, whether we have to sacrifice, and whether anyone will ever know. As a church body, as a church family, as this being one of our six statements that we're looking at over these next several weeks, unconditionally loving God and others, our community as a whole is not faced with certain issues. We're not necessarily bombarded with like a black and a white issue because of where we live, because of the culture of our surrounding areas. It's not necessarily high on the list of social things that we're dealing with. But we may deal with people that are from the city versus people that are from the country. How does a city person think about a country person or vice versa? How does a rich person think about a poor person? How does a non-formally educated person think about a formally educated person? See, we can salve our conscience and say, oh, well, we don't have that many black people in our community, so this isn't really an issue. Thanks for the Good Samaritan story, Dave. We're all good. But it's not about black and white. It's about people who are different than us, people who are our enemies, people who we have a disdain for, people that we really can't stand. And it's into that story that Christ wants us to enter to say, what is it that you will do? How will you play this out? How will you do this? I don't want anybody to come away from this message and say, Dave must think we're all a bunch of racists that hate people. I don't think that. I really don't. I think when people like Fred Mukumbu show up, we pour our love on him. When people like Stacy Baker show up, we pour our love on him. But the fact of the matter is, each one of us, myself included, needs a constant reminder of the story of the Good Samaritan to say, you know what? Every time I'm confronted with a situation to help someone who is different than me, to help someone who may be an enemy of mine or my people, who may be, uh, require sacrifice on my part, or no one will ever know that I did this. Anytime I see those things transpire, I have to ask myself, will I do what the Good Samaritan did? Will I unconditionally love God and others? How can Whitneyville Bible Church affect change in this world? In part, it is by unconditionally loving God and others.
You don't live in LA. You don't live in New York. There's not much you can do to change those areas. And there's reasons why you don't live there. But you live here. And what our kids see and what our grandkids see should be all of us demonstrating every opportunity we have to unconditionally love God and others. One of the things I don't like about being a parent is having uncomfortable conversations with my children because they see things from a perspective that I'm not even that familiar with by what they're living and going through and dealing with. And all of us have an obligation to say, I'm going to unconditionally love God and others and I'm going to allow Christ to work in my life so that when people see me, they're not seeing some Twitter post. They're not seeing some social media post. When people see me, they see Jesus Christ. That's who we must reflect. And maybe no one will ever know the great sacrifice we have made for people who are different than us, people who are enemies, and people that need help in their desperate time of need. Whitneyville Bible Church is a tremendous church with a tremendous heart, but we're not perfect. And we need the story, as much as we know it, of the Good Samaritan to remind ourselves of what God has called us to do. May today, in the midst of our world, may we be reminded of our need to reflect Jesus Christ to a world that is screaming for a solution they don't know exists. And may Jesus Christ be glorified in all that we do and say. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. And thank you for this beautiful morning. Thank you for the sun shining down to warm us, to remind us that our goal in life is to unconditionally love God and others through the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. Father, we thank you for all that you have done. We pray this morning that wherever we may be in our lives, whatever we may be going through, that, Father, you would help us to think through who we are and are we, in fact, loving our neighbor as we should. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.